You're listening to In Residence, a podcast out of the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts. KHN is a residency program for writers, composers, visual, and interdisciplinary artists. We provide artists from around the country and across the world with space and time to focus and create. We would like to share their hard work with you. Welcome back. We're focusing on Nebraska in this episode of In Residence, both directly and remotely, to experience its landscape as it shifts through history, migration, culture, and memory. Minnesotan composer and musician Andrew Turpening tells us about his new album, entitled Nebraska, which was inspired by ambient recording he made while in residence here at KHN. First, Nebraska native Erica Trebold, who currently lives in Oregon, reads excerpts from her collection titled Borrow Pits. My name is Erica Trebold, and I live in Corvallis, Oregon. I write creative nonfiction, particularly lyric essays, and lately my project has been to write about the Nebraska landscape, capturing its beauty, um, all that it is, and all that it has meant to me as a person who grew up here and who has left and who someday hopes to come back home. These sections are an excerpt of, um, I guess you could call it a book-length essay. Maybe not book-length, maybe more like chapbook length, um, or a series of linked prose poems, or flash essays. Um, But this collection is called Borrow Pits, and I've been working on it for about the past year, um, giving it a little bit of attention while I've been here at the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center. And I'll just start right at the beginning. Each one has its own title. Legacy. America is Nebraska is Arizona, is the heat of summer in any place with a proper swimming hole. In the mid-80s, this sensibility guides a retired couple to save up for a boat and rent a mobile home. They lease space on the edge of a man-made lake and sit for an afternoon, cross-legged in the sand. Not 15 miles from home, they have surrounded themselves with water. Their thoughts concern the great fortune of getting away, if only for the weekend, how their lot on the lake feels marvelous, new. With the help of friends, they park the mobile home in the sand and pour concrete for a patio. They drive west, now more than ever, following a highway that was once a railroad, 
that was once a trail, that was once simply a river. The woman furnishes her patio with plastic chairs and half a dozen picnic tables. She serves burgers, hot dogs, and corn on the cob with enough regularity to rival the cicadas. Only the lake seems to change, sparkling amethyst in afternoon, black current at dusk. Most nights, the water is calm. She decorates with small mementos, seashells from roadside stands in places seashells should not be. Colorado, Missouri, New Mexico. She tells herself these places were once an ancient sea. In the kitchen, she holds a shell to her ear and listens. The sea stirs and churns, creeps and moans, dances with the pulse of a scientific principle, two, three. She has lived her life far from the continent's edge, has never thought to consider her home so unlike the milky desert or styrofoam sea. She has never thought to consider this hole in the heart of the prairie, a landscape no longer recognizable. The decor confuses this further. Sand dollar, pincushion, cactus, and conch. Nebraska is a prairie, is a lake. Seventeen fourteen. The earliest explorers likened the North American prairie to a desert, to a sea, to a violent force they feared they could not control. Until they had cleared enough grass and grown enough trees, it made them feel small and drifting. It didn't take long to suppress that feeling. They changed the features of the landscape completely, beginning with a simple description. Consider the first Frenchman to encounter the Platte. He called the river Nebraskier, a mispronunciation of the ancient Odo word for flat water. He used a translator to make sense of the scene, the place where bison emerged from the tall grass to drink by the hundreds. He described the river as wild, a chorus of voices formed behind him. Other explorers helped complete the transformation, molding the language until the flatness felt familiar. A household object a single white plate. Tributary. Water in every state demands a physical learning. The Platte slices through the peaks of Wyoming and Colorado before brushing the underbelly of Nebraska. Cutting a sharp course through the continent, melting east out of the Rockies, it dives cold into the Missouri. Here on the surface of the map, the river looks like nothing. Off the map, the Platte runs a mile wide and an inch deep. It can fool you into thinking there is no water beneath its surface. But we know lakes were dug into the riverbed. The lakes had once been borrow pits. Holes mined for finely ground sand and pebbles. Though the holes could have been dug anywhere, they appeared here, on the south side of the Platte, 14 miles to Central City and 15 miles to Berg. Legacy. 
From the patio, the couple watches my father learn to water ski, and later they watch him teach others how to hold onto the rope trailing behind him in the boat's wake. He encourages friends when they fall, helps them out of the water when they grow tired of treading, hands over a dry towel. On the night of their wedding, my father and his bride parade the boat around the lake underneath a bedsheet banner, spray-painted to say, congratulations, in red capitals. Everything worth celebrating is celebrated here. Years before, the hairdresser first described the lakeside property, its recreational value. My grandmother decided she would find a place for herself there. She dreamed of days like this, both grown children on the water, as her curls set beneath the hum of that stationary dryer. Every year she imagined adding to a growing collection of rafts and toys. She would buy life jackets of varying size from garage sales and the sporting goods department of the local feed supply. Styrofoam plates and relish, sunscreen and ketchup, the season measured in empty packages. In the basement salon, she promised to discuss the lake with her husband. He enjoyed talking landscapes and wrote a check to cover the cost of her perm. The river bent south, dipped low then back, crested east from mountains and over hills through the length of the state. With the Platte, they were already familiar. At the border, it joined the Missouri. She didn't have to describe its course. But what would she tell him about the lake? What would it look like to inhabit a body of water so immovable and brand new? Over dinner, she constructed it verbally. She carved him a lake beyond the cottonwoods and from the side of the known, moving water from the plat to somewhere beyond its natural flow. Years ago, they had watched the water dry up completely. By drought or by dam, the river regressed into a glass jar of animal sound. Other times, the skies opened far too wide, the river coursing like blood from an open wound, spilling out over its edges. She stitched together her favorite scenes. Afternoons spent fishing from the low banks, wading against the river's current, watching sandbars form and reform in its shallow, braided channels. The lake, she imagined, was less variant than the river, calm and serene, always full-bodied and fresh. Perhaps the real thrill of her lake was that it felt foundational to the rest of their lives. Children gone and retirement in sight. The lake would be a new start. At least that was the promise, slippery to be sure. What she heard in the basement salon sounded like inheritance, legacy. It sounded like a word she had been taught to recognize. These the requirements for a life she should want. It was the simple translation of an old idea. She should have property. She should have something to pass on to her children. On the night of her son's wedding, the family toasts the future with cans of cheap beer. They look out over the water. Erica, to start, your work is very based in place, but you're not living in the location that you're writing about. How are you thinking about Nebraska as subject matter, or maybe writing about place in general, when doing so remotely? That's a great question. I tend to find a lot of inspiration when I come back to Nebraska. 
And often, at least since I've moved away, that's been twice a year over, you know, a holiday break in the winter and then in the summer, hopefully for a week or two or more. So that's actually one reason why I wanted to come here, because when I come back to Nebraska, all these memories come flooding back and... As a writer of creative nonfiction and personal essays, memory is um, a main tool uh, to the work. So I usually get a lot of inspiration and start a lot of new projects while I'm here and then kind of massage them out when I get back and continue uh, that remembering that whatever sensory experience um, happened back home in my home state, wherever I am on the lake, on a prairie, um, you know, taking a walk to the Lewis and Clark reenactment, um, that I can kind of continue to think on that and massage out the words. So I've been working on these vignettes um, here for maybe the last year off and on with some other essays that were inspired by place. Even though I'm not in that place, I can kind of compare it to the landscape of the Pacific Northwest because it's so vastly different. Um, and that helps enhance the me- the memory of it too. Mm, that's that's interesting. This idea of kind of yo-yoing back and forth between locations and different geographic and cultural contexts. Your connection and attachment to Nebraska is really obvious since you grew up here. But it seems like you're also very focused on something else about Nebraska. Um kind of the the wildness of Nebraska and the constant attempts by people who have lived or uh, traversed across the state to try and change it or rein in this wildness to a certain degree. Uh, There's a, a really great tension there. Definitely. And I learned more strangely, and maybe it just has to do with my learning style or my interests as an artist, but I learned a lot about the Nebraska landscape from my writing teachers who are nature writers themselves um, and just had a lot of things to say about how the land used to be, what it used to be like and what it's like now and what we can do um, to help that or change that or ignore it. And so They're also just things I think about when I write, but there is something about the landscape of Nebraska that people often have assumptions about, that it's, you know, it's wild, it's it's the prairie, it's, there's nothing interesting happening, it's like it always was. Um, But that's not the case, it's almost, it's not the case at all, almost anywhere, because we have cornfields, not grass, we have trees uh, that never used to be here, we have, you know, man-made lakes, all over the place. And those are interesting changes, but I'm trying to like categorize Nebraska as this actually unnatural place that is not necessarily worse, um, but it's just, it challenges that assumption and it also kind of sheds new light on environmental issues um, that the reader can then decide what to do with after they've kind of encountered that tension on the page. It also seems like some of that dissonance you find in Nebraska between what's native and how it's been reformed uh, by habitation is reflected in your formal writing style. In your writing, the way that you bring multiple disparate landscape features and lists of the way a place was, is, and may be in the future, these all seem like formal devices that mirror Nebraska as this kind of transformational space. It is a formal decision. Yeah, that's great. I love that you picked up on that because 
I also see this on not only a level of the landscape, which is something I wanted to do, and there are sections in this piece that I didn't read that talk about the company that dug these lakes and and what I feel that meant and what I feel that did. Um, But I think it also is on the family level for me because kind of what I saw happen was my family had this lake house. It was only 15 miles from where I grew up, where we all lived, Um, and I wondered why, you know? The question I had starting this essay is, well, why would we um, want to go to this place? Like, what sort of escape is there for us from this little town, this little farming community where we lived? Um, But it also links up, I think, in a dissonance, like you were talking about, because um, my dad is adopted, and so is his sister, and so their family was kind of, I don't want to say maybe the word is assembled or, or like curated or like created in this way that is not necessarily natural, you know, like we would, I kind of play with paralleling that to the environment, you know. I saw my grandmother kind of creating these conditions for the life that she wanted to live um, or thought that she wanted to live. She should have children. She adopted them. Um, they should have something to pass on. They got this lake house. They needed an escape. They went there and it was all fun and it was all good. Well, maybe not all of it was good, but the good parts I remember. Um, And so I kind of see all those things lining up on a few different levels um, that take, you know, this specific personal experience and yet try to make it or attempt to make it more universal, more of a universal concern to the reader. Hmm. I I like this idea too of curating or making the conditions of one's life and obviously as a creative person as a writer you have to do this you've mentioned um coming back to nebraska a couple times a year to get your your dose of the state and then leaving to write about it is being able to step away from your subject matter an important condition of your writing practice or do you have plans to return or immerse yourself more fully in this location at some point Hmm. I think I might come back in the future and immerse myself. I love it too much to leave it for good. Um, And I don't know. I know that it's important to this project particularly, um, but I don't know that with everything I write, it always will be. Um, But I'm fascinated with the way that it's working now. And for me as a writer right now, coming back to Nebraska is crucial. If I had more time here, I think it would be even better. Um, So no, I actually, I actually feel I could do more with more time instead of the time away. Well, thank you so much for sharing your work with us today, Erica. Erica Traybold earned her MFA at Oregon State University and her master's in English from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Her essays have appeared in Seneca Review, The Collagist, Proximity, and other journals. Borrow Pits will be included in a forthcoming issue of the literary journal Passages North. Erica was also recently awarded the Peyton James Freeman Prize and will be giving a reading at Drake University in April in conjunction with this award. The intro and outro music for this segment is by Nebraska-based musician and former KHN resident Daniel Christian.
Next up, we will hear from Andrew Turpening. The ambient recordings you heard between Erica Treibold's excerpts were recorded by Turpening during one of his residencies at KHN and were inspiration for his new album, Nebraska. Hi, my name is Andrew Turpening, and I am a composer, producer, and musician based in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. In this podcast, I will talk about the process of composing music for Nebraska, the debut album of my new band, In Trance. The music for Nebraska was composed at the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts, and I feel very thankful to the center and its staff for their generous hospitality and for creating such a fantastic environment to compose in. During two fellowships at the center, in 2010 and in 2014, I developed the sound of Entrance and the music that became Nebraska. And the CD is scheduled to be released in February of 2017. Let's listen now to a clip from the second to last track, Lyceum. During my fellowships, and as I was developing the ideas for Entrance, I was very inspired by Nebraska and by Nebraska City. And the album has quite a lot of pictures and field recordings from my time in the state. The first thing that you'll hear on the album is the call of the world-famous Sandhill Cranes, which I found absolutely fascinating. A writer friend of mine, Jeff, who is also studying at the center, told me about them, and a group of us all went to Kearney in central Nebraska to see them. The album starts with their incredible, almost prehistoric-sounding calls, which were recorded at night as they were falling asleep, standing up in the Platte River, and in the morning as they were beginning to wake up. So without further ado, here is the first track, Sand Hill. Another sound that I took a lot of inspiration from was the train that regularly passed through Nebraska City and formed an important part of the city's soundtrack. I used to enjoy hearing it rumble through the city, and I'm sure that many KHN fellows share my fondness. 
Let's listen to the train, and then I'll explain how I incorporated it into a song. Around the same time that I came across this recording of the train, I was composing a danceable club track in E minor with a very melodic lead line played on a synthesizer. It was a fun song for me to write because I wrote it late at night and spent a lot of time playing around with different permutations of the melody line. Let's listen to the beginning part of the song, and then I'll explain how I incorporated the train sound into it. This is the fourth song on the album, and it's called Bounce. About a minute into the song Bounce, the kick drum comes in and the song turns into a euphoric club-type anthem. What I decided to do is to use a very interesting technique called side-chaining, where you essentially tie an audio source to the kick drum. I tied the audio source of the train to the kick drum so that whenever the kick drum sounded, the train got quieter, and then the train got louder, creating a pumping effect. So let's hear what that sounded like. One of my major music breakthroughs at the Kimmel-Harding-Nelson Center was the development of Baroque breakbeat. This is a new music style that I had planned to develop for a very long time, and only through significant time composing at the KHN Center was it able to come to fruition. The idea of Baroque breakbeat is to have breakbeats, which are polyrhythms that are extremely frenetic and aggressive, and are influenced by my studies of Cuban and Brazilian percussion, and to pair them with Baroque-style strings, Baroque, of course, being the music of the era of Bach and Vivaldi. 
So it's an attempt to merge very sweet, beautiful, lush strings with synthesizers and modern 21st century drums. Let's listen to Lead, the second song of the album, named, of course, after the amazing Lead Lodge of Nebraska City, which is in the Baroque breakbeat style. At this point, I would like to thank the Kimmel Hardy Nelson Center for the Arts for the opportunity to do this podcast. Thank you all for listening. And if you'd like more information about Entrance and the album Nebraska, you can visit Entrance.com. That's E-N-T-R-A-A-N-C-E.com. And the album Nebraska can be found on all streaming sites. Thanks again. Thanks, Andrew, for sharing your new album with us. If you love that as much as I did, stay tuned to our website, khncenterforthearts.org, our Facebook page, or our Instagram. Um, Sign up for a newsletter because Andrew has plans to come back to Nebraska City to have a listening party for this album sometime in the near future. So stay tuned. Uh, Keep checking us out on our different social media pages, and we'll get some dates for you very, very shortly. And that wraps up our episode. I'm Amanda Smith, your host and program director here at KHN. KHN is made possible by the generous support of the Richard P. and Lorraine Kimmel Charitable Foundation. The intro and outro music is Sirens by Jeff Harms, who was a resident here in 2008. If you would like more information about our program or to learn about any of our featured artists and residents, please visit our website khncenterforthearts.org or come visit us in Nebraska City.